as I was mentioning before we were recording, I moved my office downstairs. And, uh, you know, the audio quality can be a little mixed because we've got the wood wood flooring down here. But I do have a carpet underneath this. So so here we are recording. Do, do you two, does it sound any different than usual? No, I mean, it sounds, I think, grittier, earthier. Earthier. You know, we're really yeah. getting the, the real Cote now. Yeah. I, am, I am closer to the earth. What I found out is that on the side of my house is very popular with squirrels. They, they come over there a lot, and they just mess mm. around. I guess they're looking for things. I don't know how they find anything <laughs> to eat in the gravel we have out there, but that, you know, I guess I guess when you're a squirrel, you, you eat whatever you can find. Yeah, I, I feel like we're gonna have new guest stars on this this podcast now. <laughs> Squirrels. Well, you know, we've already had lots of cameos <laughs> of my uh, my children beating on the door trying to get access to me. They just, you know, I, at the ages of four and eight, I don't think you understand. Like, daddy needs to make money so you can have toys. That doesn't doesn't hasn't mm-hmm. quite gone through. We'll see. Maybe when they get to civics, they'll learn that. It, it'll be good. Well, anyways, why don't you briefly introduce yourself, guest? Sure. Uh, my name is Martin. I work on the spring team uh, at Pivotal, uh, and my the purpose of my work here is uh, work on the tooling. So work on IDE plugins to make Spring developers happy during the day and hacking on their spring apps. And that's, that's what I'm working all day. Mm, tools. Nice. Wait, wait, you know, uh, we'll come back to you in just a little bit. We have a few brief news items. And feel free to chime in, or as I like to tell people, it's always a good time to catch up on your email if you're not interested in that. Maybe, maybe in the tooling world, you do a little competitive analysis of what else is going on out there. I don't know, whatever you do. But first up, uh, related, uh, we have a, there's a there's a brand new huge release in Spring Boot 2.0. Now, now, Richard, what is in this huge release? Man, it is it is big. It is the first. I mean, Spring Boot releases constantly. There's always these milestone releases, and there's always point releases. But this is the first kind of 1.0 was back in in 2014. So this is the first major, major release in these four years. And so this brings in Spring Framework 5. I think we've had discussions of that in the podcast back in August, September when that came out. So this gives reactive programming, gives a new Java baseline for Java 8, supports Java 9, uh, some be- you know backwards compatibility stuff, also some breaking changes in some small areas, but just a number of big improvements to the framework, some refactoring. So if you're a Spring developer, I was looking at the stats this morning, Devs are going crazy on start.spring.io, building new projects with 2.0. So big milestone. A lot of these other projects are now updating to support 2.0. And yeah, it's a great next step that we'll you know, be building on top of from here. Yeah, I, I was catching up on one of your uh, your recordings of, of your talk at Spring One Platform, uh, Martin. And uh, as, as you say, people are cuckoo for the Spring Boot. I mean, that seems to be a, a major driver of the tools that you've been working on recently as well. Oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, we uh, we work a lot on on improving the Spring Boot support in the tools, uh, because people really, really love the Spring Boot experience, and we try to make it make it even easier, right, in in the tools to just get get a running boot app, uh, including the started Spring.io uh, integration, mm-hmm. um, and getting a Spring Boot app up and running in in your favorite IDE in just a second or just a minute, right? So that's uh, yeah, the, the people love that experience. I, I like I like that idea there. It's it's pre- preventing developers from getting another cup of coffee because it operates too quickly. It's, <laughs> it's sort of addressing their health. You know, I've been I've been reading recently that that one of the uh, things that makes you live longer. Maybe I shouldn't be reading these listicles. Was like drinking coffee, and uh, I I don't. It's hard to figure out if that's a cause or a correlation or whatever. Like maybe if you live longer, you like get tired, so you need more coffee. I don't know. 
but there has to be some limit and of how much you should drink a day. I haven't found it yet, but it must exist where where it starts to become unhealthy. Uh, so if anyone knows that, I would appreciate the details. That that would be good to know. I mean, you and I haven't we haven't talked about the uh, the bacon maybe killing us storyline as well, which oh. seems like that's hitting both of us pretty hard right now. Now is that actually is that out now? Or are you just making that up? Yeah, I saw it last week. It's like it's like nitrates or something, which oh, I think nitrates. all of us are are willing to say that our our life is worth a little. I mean, I'm I'm okay, maybe going a little earlier, but with a life full of bacon. Yeah, man, that's talk about a trade off. You're gonna need a uh, you're gonna need some uh, Monte Carlo simulations to figure that one out. That's that's a hard one. Go study stats so you can understand exactly what probability is. It's very confusing. Well, uh, speaking of things that are confusing, <laughs> so I think, was this over the weekend? Like, GitHub had a, hu- a huge, uh, as they say, DDoS, which is not an old operating system. It's, you know, a distributed denial of service attack. And, and like, they, they, if I remember the little bit of reading, like, they, they handled it pretty well, as I recall. Like, it didn't bring down the complete development community. But, uh, you know, what I always wonder with these things is, like, are, are are they being like held hostage, like to have ransom, or like is that the only reason you do a DDoS attack nowadays, like of a commercial entity, or is it just like you know I just want to te- I I accidentally ele- asked Alexa to do the wrong thing? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know for sure. Sometimes you see those as response to like, hey, this site is hosting things we don't like, so therefore we try to take the site down, or you're trying to do you know ransom stuff, or you're just trying to prove that you can. But I mean, in their case, they were handling a. a uh, almost comical amount of traffic. It was whatever a terabyte per second coming in. And I think they resolved the whole thing in about 10 minutes by working with upstream providers. And, you know, the reason I listed that in the news was mainly because, again, I think we talked last week when we talked with Molly about security and it can be easy to kind of leave out the DDoS concerns because you're just thinking again about patching or you think about, you know, traditional security stuff, but taking your system offline and having kind of these breach points is a factor in security. So thinking through yourself and maybe playing some of those games internally with your mission critical apps to see how would we respond to a DDoS attack is probably a good exercise for a Friday afternoon for your teams if you don't already do that. Mm. Yeah, every time I see some like, um, I guess you would call it security, security attack like that, like, I just think like, man, wouldn't it be terrible if you're just like, I just want to be online so people can order dumplings for me. And the next thing you know, you're worrying about people like mining Bitcoin on your server or something. Like, it's just sort of like all these annoyances you need to put up. I guess you would use some other service nowadays to sell your your dumplings or whatever, but it just seems like a lot of hassle that you would have to put up with. But you probably don't need like a huge DDoS attack uh, defense. It'd be fine. So then, then also in uh, in in the news, I like the way you characterize this. You were like a strangely positive piece from the Register, <laughs> where where our uh, our friends over at VMware had uh, had their I guess their quarterly call last week, and and one there there were a couple there was all sorts of interesting stuff in there I'm sure, but r- relative relevant to our interests around here, they were saying that uh, there's been there's been a fair amount. Uh, and, and, you know, for as new as it is, I'm sure fair amount is fair compared to like zero or one. So there's been a lot of incoming interest in uh, how they would use their networking stuff, NSX, along with Pivotal Container Services. And, you know, being a former analyst, I went informally, did a little channel check with our own people and asked how many, uh, uh, I don't know, inquiries and questions for POSs there are and yeah there's there's a there, there's a good amount that people have said people are interested in which I think I think it's fair to say in a in a very favorable way that like yeah everyone's interested sort of an everyone minus one situation I'm sure there's people who are not interested but 
there's been a lot of incoming requests uh, about it. And then, and then also, as highlighted in the article, it's a favorite thing of people who watch acquisitions to know if uh, if uh, a thing has paid off or not. And I haven't really paid attention to NSX, but it says they're at a run rate of 1.6 billion. So one would assume that they've been approaching that. So I, I guess the investment has uh, paid off more more than enough. But yeah, remember software defined networking? That was a thing, right? No one really says that anymore. SDN. Yeah, well, now they're paying for it versus just putting it in white papers and, and things like that. So clearly your people are buying it like crazy. And I, I think, again, I found this interesting because on one hand, you know, it's easy to, I don't know, armchair quarterback and say VMware has no future in this cloud centric world. And, you know, hey, VMs are giving way to functions and containers. And like everyone likes to figure out how these existing companies are going to go pass away at some point. And in this case, I don't know, VMware, even the LREG article, right? I mean, it was the VMware might have cracked the container market. Like maybe, hey, maybe these big software companies are actually good at software and they keep finding new ways to apply it to modern technology. In VMware's case, like they've got another billion dollar business for networking. Hopefully they have another one with PKS with us. I don't know, good to see that, you know, networking matters. It makes things easier, especially when it's software defined. And PKS is clearly solving a big problem in VMware's market space. So that all seems like good news. Yeah, I need. I need. I should track down who the headline writers are over there and send them a warning. Be like, don't let this happen again. Positive headline, no good. Yeah, no. I mean, it, <laughs> I was wait. I was waiting to see the comments or something. Like, where is the negativity in this article? It wasn't even in the comments, so I don't know what's going on. Well, you know, related to that, and then we'll close off about talking about our our buddies over at VMware. I I forget the stats off the top of my head, but I remember a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, seeing that their uh, their mix of revenue had shifted enough. That like it's not like you know eighty or ninety percent based on uh, selling vSphere and stuff. So there's plenty of portfolio wise. I seem to be managing revenue sources, which which is encouraging, you know, for all of us, but uh, for for that company as well. So speaking of things people freak out on behalf of VMware about, whether it's neater or not, uh, over over at Redmonk, Stephen O'Grady wrote a uh, for him uncharacteristically brief piece. I was rereading it this morning, and that's the first thought I had is like, wow, this is really short, uh, which I only mean in, in a positive, jesting way, I guess. But uh, he, he was essentially uh, – it was, it was sort of a, a, on its own an interesting statement, but basically yet another in the series of uh, Kubernetes has won and uh, so forth and so on. But he was, you know, positing that it was, uh, as, as is Red Monk theory, the developers who had driven that a lot. And I think, you know, that's a fine posit. But I think more interesting was the ensuing, like, miniature discussion about it in, in, the, uh, in the Twitter world, where all great conversations occur nowadays. Uh, and and of course. Uh, I, think, I think there was a good clarification that, that O'Grady made based on people heckling him. The heckling being that, like... Oh, Kubernetes is for operations people. So developers are in no way responsible for that. And of course, uh, Stephen was like, you know, as, in so much as, what is it, 280 characters now? Sort of like, well, I, for, I forget what he, exact, he, he exactly wrote. It, you know, I could bring it up and read it, but that's tedious. Uh, essentially saying, well, developers contributed a huge amount to this because when they were containerizing their things, that helped drive even more need for uh, Kubernetes. And I think, I think that's a fair way of looking at it, that if, uh, if something like uh, Docker hadn't come along and had all these developers excited about how much they could package their applications, then the, uh, 
you know, the need for a Kubernetes would have been a little, a little weirder, but mm-hmm. I think, I think more, more related to my interests, like, I don't know, I think across, like a, across, I think over the last six months or so, I have been noticing this trend of, uh, of people essentially saying like, if you're a developer, you shouldn't need to worry about Kubernetes, which is, I don't know if I like, you know, was having some sort of like I had like some blackout drunk weekend or a stroke or something. But I feel like the last two years of Kubernetes was like driven a huge amount by developers being interested in it and talking about their phrases. And so I've been trying to like narrow down a way of uh, investigating this more. And I thought I should put together a talk. And of, of course, it's there's going to be alliteration and all C's are replaced by K's. I mean, that's like the way it's going to go. But it should be something like Kubernetes for the confused, where it's sort of like a non a non like technical overview of like what this thing is and if you should use it and and uh, how to think about fitting it into the the way that you do things. So, as often with my presentations, I have no idea what would be in it. Just seems like it would be a good talk. So, if there's anyone out there who was confused at some point and deconfused themselves, it'd be it'd be nice to hear from them and. You know, I'll, I'll we'll see if I actually do this. One of my rules is like you should never promise to do anything until it's done, because often you will never actually do it, and then it's embarrassing. Uh, but, anyways, um, you know, uh, I'll go talk to people that I know. But it'd be good to get input from others, because you know, I was sketching this out, and and one way of putting it, I I don't know if this is true at all, but just one way of putting it is like just to arbitrarily pick a number. Mm-hmm. In the future, it seems like it would be the case. I keep hedging this, that something like the following would be true. Only 5,000 people in the world need to know how to run Kubernetes. And and again, I don't know if that's the right number, but like you probably need like, let's say 50 people at the top three cloud providers. Let's say 100, right? Who are mm-hmm. running all these Kubernetes int- uh, things. And then if we take it um, for, if, if we take the assumption that like, let's take the global 2000 and let's say 50% of them are going to run their own Kubernetes cluster for awesome, perfectly good reasons. And they only need like a hundred people. Now I can't actually do math. So I don't know if that adds up to 5,000, but like, you know, you, you get the idea that like, if there are not that many big Kubernetes clusters running in the world, then like how many people actually need to know about it, which then would validate the criticism that developers shouldn't care about this stuff. But it is, uh, I guess, in comparison, it'd be interesting to know how many, what do they call them? Vexperts? How, how many <laughs> How many Vexperts are out there? And then you could look at like really expensive, like uh, hyper-converged infrastructure clusters and see how many are out there. But I don't know, it'd be interesting to find out like, all right, so if Kelsey Hightower says developers need to, don't need to know about Kubernetes, is that true? And then if that's true, who should know about it and how do they need to be uh, thinking about it? which I'm sure I'll get some corrections on what, what was said where or whatever. But anyways, I could use some help on that. That's a good take. It just seems like it's a maturity model question. Like right now developers have to care because they have to drag operators into it. And then Mm. operators, I mean, to your point, like if it seems like if in 10 years from now, it's still a primitive that developers are using, we've done it wrong. Like by then it's a commodity and a platform, just like arguably now, what is there 10 companies in the world that should build their own application platform? It's just, what (laughs) were you doing? Like, why would you do that? So the same thing here, right? In 10 years, why in the world would a developer still be interacting with Kubernetes? You're going to interact with the abstractions on top of it. 
it's still always about velocity. It's still always about delivering. I think it's been it's a necessity when a technology comes out that you have to get into the guts of it, especially as you're championing it within your organization. But at some point, why am I still in the guts? That's yeah. probably not where the value is. So I think it's just a maturity stage. Of course, right now, there's all sorts of people who need to know it and they're getting deep in it. I just hope that's not the case a few years from now. Yeah, you know, you're remind like that that reminds me of uh like in in the in the I don't know what the mid late 2000s is, but in the mid, <laughs> in 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 the mid late 2000s there was I remember when the word virtualization would come up, you had to ask if it was uh which if it was type 1, 2 or 3 or para virtualization or whatever type of virtualization, which at the time as you say was like nice to know, but nowadays no one cares. <laughs> Right. Like it's just virtualization. It doesn't really. And that that could that's is probably largely because like one of them went out as the uh, the dominant way of doing stuff. But it was uh, it was much discussion of the type of virtualization you were using when ultimately yeah. the outcome you wanted was uh, was irrelevant. And then, you know, relevant to our interest. I'm, I'm also always reminded of uh, something I always noticed at Java one when I would go, which was like it's it sort of it's not paradoxically, but um, uh much much to much against the problem that java was always trying to solve which is sort of like developers should not care broadly right i remember the jvm tuning talks always had like standing room only line out the door and it always seemed to me that like man if you got to tune your jvm that much something's going wrong <laughs> like it's supposed to like take care of all this for me but Man, people loved all those like dot capital X flags and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's oh, just yeah. history of computing stuff. I mean, I just finished reading Showstoppers. It was the story of how uh, Microsoft had to rush to build Windows NT. It was really it was an awesome book. But it was, again, the story of like back then you're still figuring out kernel questions. You're, you know, all these people trying to figure out, to your point, all these really low level details. And even by the end, it's like, I'm just trying to build apps on Windows. Like, I don't want to deal with the kernel. I don't want to. You know, I think this is just always, right? Things get introduced. You have to know the guts. They mature. Smart companies bake them into platforms, which then people can get back to the work they should be doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so Martin, it sounds like you've spent a lot of time optimizing the VM, or at least you've seen people do it. <laughs> yeah. I also remember these long lines in front of the full-peg rooms at Java 1 and reading long lists of all these flags for the JVM and trying to figure out what these 50 different garbage collectors could mm. do or should do or what they what they are going why they're going crazy on my in my IDE session things like that. Yeah, I I also remember those times. Mm, the garbage collectors. That was good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, you know that was one of the the early instances of uh, snarky developers that w they would call something garbage. There, there must have been some more uh, technical term for it, but, but that's the one that stuck. <laughs> well, so so on that topic, let, be, be, back to yourself and and Spring Tools. So I think I mean let let's start with like the uh, the newest thing. So Spring Tools four came out like as a way of introducing what Spring Tools is, but also kind of talking about the dramatic shift shift it shift. Uh, in it like uh like w what's the deal with spring tools for i mean it's a pretty like monumental release right but what makes it so yeah i think uh so it, it's not really a release it's a public beta at the moment right so the release is going to be ga i think in the middle or second half of the year uh, but it's a pretty dramatic shift in the past we we worked on let's say ide plugins to support spring developers 
uh, for specific IDEs, and we as a team focused on on Eclipse was kind of the the most favorite Java IDE back then, uh, and we wrote plugins for Eclipse and uh, really learned a lot about these Eclipse APIs and uh, implemented those Spring tools for the Eclipse IDE in a way that they were tightly integrated into Eclipse. They knew everything about Eclipse. They really, they really. They were they were really deeply integrated with the existing Eclipse IDE, right? And um, and we worked on that for uh, I don't know maybe for ten years or so. And then over the years, uh, it was clear that um, in the old days it was kind of Eclipse as the main main Java IDE, and then there was IntelliJ from JetBrains as kind of this, the the second IDE. But nowadays, it's uh, people choose different tools all the way down, right? They they do Eclipse IDE. They use Eclipse IDE for Java development. They use IntelliJ. They use uh, Atom. They use Sublime Text. They use whatever whatever they want, right? Um, so it's uh, and one of the reasons for that is that they they do not only hack Java code all day, right? They work on HTML stuff, on JavaScript things, and so on. So they they really pick and choose those tools. So we thought about hmm, what what should we do with in in this landscape for for supporting Spring developers, right? Because the IntelliJ stuff, IntelliJ guys, uh, they have they have great Spring support, so that's that's good. So we don't really have to care about how to support IntelliJ for Spring developers. But what about what about the Eclipse, the future of the Eclipse IDE? What about all the other tools that people are starting to use? So we we thought about that for a long time and took a took a look at all the different different tools people start to use, like these lightweight editors on the one side, and these big heavyweight integrated development environments on the other side, and then the the new kids on the block like the, the cloud IDEs. Is that maybe something we should take a look at? And and while we were doing that, we figured out that we should really focus on what is important to us. And important to us is supporting people who hack Spring apps independent of which tool they choose to do that. And we thought about how, how, should, how, how should we do that? And then uh, we, 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 we came along with uh, Visual Studio Code that came out roughly at the same time. And the, the Microsoft guys working on Visual Studio Code, interestingly, kind of the, the same team that did the Eclipse work back in the old days, uh, sort of the same the same group of people, or maybe a sub-team of that, subgroup. Um, and this Visual Studio Code approach was really, really interesting to us because they, they, um, they invented sort of a new architecture for these language tooling for how to support different languages, right? They were not focused on Spring or certain frameworks, but they were focusing on how can we support TypeScript, how can we support JavaScript, how can we support C-sharp and things like that. And they came up with a really interesting idea, uh, what they called these, these language servers. Uh, and we, we adopted that and sort of started to rewrite all of the Spring tooling on top of these new architecture, which, which allows us now to um, implement the Spring tooling just once, like all these content assist and validations and hover helps and all these, these kind of things that makes your life easier as a Spring app developer. 
Uh, and we can just write that once uh, in a language of our choice. In this case, of course, we, we like Java, right? Um, to do spring tooling. Um, and we can deliver that and support different IDEs and different clients at the same time, right? We can put the same stuff into Eclipse, we can put the same stuff into VS Code and into Atom and maybe in the future into, I don't know, 10 other IDEs or lightweight editors or whatever. Um, so that was, that's, that's kind of the, the big architectural shift behind the scenes that really allows us now to support all the different IDEs and all the different lightweight editors that are out there in the world. Uh, and we don't have to take care anymore about all the details of the internal Eclipse APIs and all the the details about one specific IDE, and then if someone else comes along saying, "Hey, can you support uh, can you support VS Code?" Say, "Ah, oh, yeah. Now we have to rewrite everything in, let's say, TypeScript." And yeah, let's start from scratch and rewrite Spring tooling in TypeScript. And then the next guy comes along saying, "Oh, can you support Atom?" Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 go and rewrite all the spring tooling in JavaScript or and use all the different specific Atom APIs, for example. So we, we don't need to do that. Right? And we can, can support, we can implement stuff just once uh, and support all the different different IDEs. And that was kind of the, um, the, 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 the groundbreaking architectural change behind the scenes that drove us and made us think about, hey, let's let's sort of start from scratch, pick the best ideas that we had in the past, think about even new ideas, how to support Spring developers, and do something new and something uh, something radical that that makes your life as a Spring app developer even easier in the future. And you can you can choose the tools you want, the tools that you love, uh, and you can still work on Spring apps and and Java apps and Get an get an awesome experience out of that. So so it seems like uh, there's sort of a shift of like uh, we will we'll bring Spring tools to you in whatever environment you're in, and and you know as as yeah. y'all as y'all joked about, I don't think I don't think y'all are shipping with uh, Emacs and VI support, but in theory, such things could be easily added for uh, I guess people oh, yeah, that, who that, don't have better things to do with their life. Uh, there but, are actually people working on these integrations for the language service stuff for, oh, for exciting. Exactly those editors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's and, a long list of, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 different, like, what they call clients, like the editors or the IDEs, that are going to support that. And um, I'm, I think I saw even Emacs and, and Vim on that list. I think, mm. yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to get someone to uh, you know we'll have to get James Weaver on my team. He likes adding things to the uh, the Google Home thing, asking it to tell music. We'll see if he can work on getting Spring tools on there. He can do some voice <laughs> programming. Uh, but so so you you mentioned like the uh, uh, what did you call them? Not the not not the language server, but the the servers behind it. Like or the, it is the language server. See, I was paying attention, uh, but I just have a lot of self doubt. Uh, but what what is this language server concept? Uh, without reverse engineering it so much, what, what what does it do, and where does it run, and how does it fit into things? So, what is that? Yeah, e even though it's called language server, it's not really you, you, it's not it hasn't really anything to do with a big server machine or with an application server running in the cloud somewhere, things like that, right? It's, and nothing to do with that. So don't don't get confused with the term server thing in here. Um, the main idea behind this language server. Um, architecture is that 
you make a split between the client, which is the IDE or the editor, the lightweight editor, and the client doesn't know anything about the language you're working on. Um, it, it only knows about, let's say, syntax highlighting using a TextMate grammar file or something like that, but it has no idea about the real language understanding or building abstract syntax trees or doing compiling or doing content assist things. All these smarts are not done by the client anymore. The client is really kind of a, a dumb, lightweight, fast editor that does syntax highlighting and nothing else, more or less. And to get the to get these nice and smart and language specific features into this editor, the editor talks to a separate process that's running on your machine, right, side by side with the editor. Um, but it's a separate process, and it talks to that process and tells the process, "Hey, uh, I have a specific process, for example, for Java, which is the Java language server that's running on your machine um, as a sub process of the editor, and it talks to that." and tells the process, hey, uh, look, I work on this project, on this file, can you give me content assist? My cursor is sitting at line 20 at character four. Can you give me, please, content assist? And then the, the language of it does a real work, right? The language of it knows how to analyze a specific language, knows how to do content assist, to do validations and errors and, and highlighting things and all these nice little smarts that, are, that, that make your life so, so nice and so easy when you use these language-aware tools, but they're not really baked into the editor, right? They are running in separate processes. And that's that's a really smart idea because they put a, a protocol and they define the protocol between these two processes, which is the language server protocol. And that's kind of sending JSON messages forth and back yeah. between these two, two, two sides. And that makes it so nice because now you can start thinking about, hey, I can hack my language server in the language of my choice so I don't have to take care to implement my Java language server in TypeScript, which would be kind of crazy, right? <laughs> would be strange. Um, I can implement that in Java. And, oh, I want to implement my C-sharp language server. Oh, I can just reuse what's there and it's written in C-sharp and run that and it talks the protocol and sends the JSON, JSON messages forth and back and does all these heavy language analysis in, in a language of its choice and in, in reusing the libraries that are already there because many languages already come with sort of parsers and ASTs and things like that. Right? And you can, you can just do that in separate processes and separate projects. And that's, that's really, really, really nice. It makes your life as, as someone who is focusing on a language, for example, or in our case, on a framework, Makes it like really easy, right? You can you can just pick a language, you can implement your language server. You need to talk the protocol, but that's all. And then you don't have to take care about the client at all, about the editor experience, about the IDE around that. You can really focus on that, and that's that's really a, a great great step forward. That answers like uh, the main question I had when I was looking at this is like it seems like you're gonna have to re-implement a bunch of stuff across all these various editors. But like you're saying, if uh, I guess, I don't know, to summarize in my own weird way, like nowadays, if you want to actually have uh, uh, the services that you would need for doing an IDE, uh, you don't have to rely on all like single process in-memory stuff and therefore, you know, um, 
it basically being all in the same programming language, unless you're like, like to challenge yourself. But instead, yeah, yeah. In, instead you can like just run, get a little, uh, your, your, your SDK of languageosity, your language server can actually be just like its own little independent process that gets run. And it's cool. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah, like having yeah. to make orbs and, uh, J and D I things and stuff like that. Like we sort of, sort, yeah, you, yeah. you sort of finally cracked the old object oriented thing of like, we're going to have these objects that like send messages to each other. And then we can like win lots of points by allowing them to be, uh, ignorant of each other and reuse them. And, uh, we can go home early or something cause we got lots of reuse, but I think, yeah, I think yeah, exactly. an, another, another effective, another effect of it, as you're saying, is like, uh, you can go into all these other different editors, like, and whether it's Visual Studio or, you know, Eclipse or, or Vim even, or all these things. And, and you don't have to have someone in Elisp go implement all this stuff or C or whatever it is they do over there, uh, for, for the Emacs land. And, uh, you can help out more people, I guess, which that seems nice. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I, I I remember the uh, I know a lot of folks in the the Eclipse community, especially also the the guys hacking the C development tooling for Eclipse, right? And they they really went down and and implementing parsers and and building ASTs, implementing everything in Java for C and C plus plus, which was really 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 crazy at that time because nowadays it's it's all there, right? You use you use Clang or whatever, and you you get everything out of that. Uh, but there was no way to reuse that in, in an IDE like Eclipse because you had to implement everything in Java and it had, everything had to run in the same process and things like that, right? And that's really a, a dramatic step forward. I think, at so, least from my point of view, it's really cool. Yeah, when you look at that tools landscape, Martin, do you do you see people using some of these IDEs differently now? I mean, I've used the uh, plugin for Spring Tool Suite. I've used the one for Code. And I guess there's different reasons I use each one of those. But do you see the difference between how devs, everyday devs approach IDEs? Are they using more lightweight editors? And that's why they like things like Atom. Is that just for quick scratch projects versus their real enterprise stuff? And then, hey, some people are even using browser IDE sort of stuff. So what do you think of the landscape? Is it one reason we're trying to support kind of wherever you are is because wherever you are is changing or how do you see that that shaking out? I th I think what what I've seen is that that people really they choose the tools that they love and that they and that makes sense to them to do their daily development and I think in the in the old days the the big let's say the enterprise java developers I I'm, I'm pretty sure they all use big heavyweight integrated IDEs and if you take a look at the JavaScript folks out there, uh, they really try to stay away from all these big heavyweight IDEs and they use lightweight editors, they use Atom and VS Code and and even Sublime Text and things like that, right? Um, and um, and some people, some people, for some people, it even makes sense to use sort of an, a cloud IDE because they don't want to set stuff up and they just want to open the browser and can have everything integrated. So um, I see that that people really use different tools for different purposes, and and they even switch forth and back between the tools. Some people use a, in, in an Eclipse IDE for doing Java development, and and at the moment I, I see a see a shift towards more lightweight editors, more lightweight environments because people are sick of the IDE uh, consuming 100% of your eight core CPU all the time situations. Uh, and and eating up all your memory things, 
Um, they they tend to like more lightweight tools, but would also like to do Java tooling. So they prefer to do something like VS Code with a Java editing experience, which is pretty nice these days. You can do real stuff in there. Um, and then other folks also they they go back to the IDE experience and say, no, we want to get these kind of these all tightly integrated environment with these heavyweight refactorings and and, and a huge feature set. That, that you really benefit from. So I think it really depends on, on the project, on the team that you're working on, on the environment you're, you're sitting in, um, which tool, which IDE, which cloud IDE, which lightweight editor really makes sense to you. And I see people use, they use all of that, right? Um, with the cloud IDE, I think it's a little bit different. I think it's, um, it's interesting uh, because there are certain situations where a cloud ID really makes a lot of sense, right? Because you don't have to set every developer machine up and then configure everything and run everything locally and things like that. You can just press a button or open a browser and you get everything everything in there. Um, but I haven't really seen the big enterprise Java, Java developers, the real developers, hacking on the code on a day-to-day base. I haven't really seen people really loving these cloud IDEs to work on the code uh, on a day-to-day basis. That's that's an in, that's an interesting interesting case, and I I think there are various reasons for that. But that that's I think one of the reasons why cloud IDEs are not really, from my point of view, not really replacing desktop IDEs, for example, or replacing lightweight editors. But they are kind of an additional an additional part of the game. That, that makes sense for certain situations and, and not for others. So I'm interested in, so when I used the the new Spring tools and, you know, given I don't get paid to code anymore, thank goodness, is, you know, yes, your things like type ahead are helpful and even manifest editing for a Java app or, you know, pulling in dependencies, whatever. Do we have any telemetry in Spring tools that tells us, hopefully anonymously, what people are using or you know, what kind of capabilities in Spring Tools are they taking advantage of? Or are we just kind of doing it anecdotally based on what devs tell us? Yeah, we basically do that anecdotally, what devs tell us. We, we had um, telemetry built into the Spring Tool Suite uh, several years ago, and we used that to a certain degree, but it's really, it's really hard to get that right and to make that anonymous and and sometimes people don't really like these tools calling home and sending data across the network to some 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 random location. Um, so uh, we we don't really do that anymore. So we rip that out of the tools. Uh, we do that anecdotally with what people tell us and what, what what feedback do we get when we go to conferences and and talk to the community. So I think that's that's the main data point for us and what what of course what we think makes sense because the good thing is that we have all the spring experts on board right so they can they can also give us feedback and tell us what's 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 great and what's maybe what's maybe not well well so you know for for those people who haven't actually uh you know programmed or used an id in a while i mean you know that that may or may not be someone like me but like what uh what 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 are like the crazy fun things that IDEs do for you nowadays? And and to to tell you you know contextualize, like back when when well back when this theoretic person uh, a friend of mine used to actually program, uh, you know <laughs> like being the I think the two most amazing things were like you could refactor things easily like do huge refactorings and of course code completion was cool, 
But then there was also like the ability to actually like uh, uh, run your applications to debug them all on your desktop and like, you know, basically tracing through them was always an evolving, exciting thing. But like, are there, uh, are there other exciting, what's been going on innovation wise in, in IDE land that's uh, relatively bonkers? I think one of the, one of the, I think the refactoring landscape is still that's still highly interesting and, and, and highly usable for developers. So uh, there are even more refactorings out there where you can extract methods and uh, refactor across projects and even record refactorings to apply them later to mm. clients of you, for example. So which is interesting if you don't have all the projects in your workspace or on your on your machine, right? So you can record your refactorings and uh, if someone else uh, uses your project, they can they can apply them. That's kind of an, an interesting interesting case for these refactorings. And the debugging support, I think, is is getting getting better and better over time. It's um, I think it's um, one of the the challenges that are ahead of us at the moment. And I haven't seen an IDE that really solves that. Is if you take a look at the new Spring Five reactive story and all these reactive. Uh, ways of doing things with these lambdas and functional programming styles. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what IDEs are going to do to support you debugging that, for example, and and going into these nested structures and into these lambda expressions and things like that. That's uh, I think that's that's the area where I see most of the innovation innovation going on in the next in the next wave. Uh, of versions in the IDEs. I guess, I guess if you were to take like a lot of, uh, I don't know, DevOpsy or even cloud native stuff to its logical conclusion, or maybe maybe one of its mildly logical ones is, uh, you would want to have some sort of overlay in the IDE of like stuff that you would care about to make your code run better in production. Like in production, this me- this method you're in right now there's a lot of time spent in it and, and maybe too much time. So just if only there were uh, to use some pop economics term, there's like a nudge that you get in your code that like, this is a very important part of the code based on how often it executes in production. And it also takes a long time uh, to execute would be an interesting way of, of focusing your attention on something. And then, you know, of course, like uh, running actual real world uh, data through a system and processes to see what it looks like. But I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to get the developers too oriented around what's going on in production. That you know, we got to slowly drip that in, and 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 vice versa as well. Yeah, but but I think I think one of the one of the pieces in in that story is to take a look at a running app, right, and and integrating that with the IDE story. And I think that's right. very interesting. Um, that's what what IDEs typically don't do, right? They analyze code and they do these kind of code analysis and trying to find references in the code and things like that. But usually they don't have an idea what's going on if you run if you run the app. If you're hacking a Spring Boot app and there are kind of beans being injected and things like that that's going on at runtime, there's a lot of stuff going on at runtime that the IDE has no idea about. And it can try to try to imagine what might happen at runtime by looking at the code, but it's in the end, it's not the same, right? It's it's definitely not the same as if you would run run your real spring ever. Yeah, that, yeah. That's also, yeah. for example, one of the things that we tried to do in the Spring Tools 4 initiative with the, with the new tools is to integrate that, right? To say, hey, we have these Spring Boot actuators that give us data from 
live running Spring Boot applications. So, and if you have the same project in the workspace, why not merge that and visualize the information that's coming from the real running Spring app on your machine, for example, when you debug that or when you just run it, uh, and integrate that into your source code. So yeah, that, that would see, be great. Oh, there's yeah, that, that that's what we have already. Uh, that's what we have. Uh, kind of the first steps for that, at least, right? right. I think there are maybe 50 more features we can implement for that. <laughs> but the basic steps are already working, right? You can you can see your code, and you can you can hover you can see hovers appearing in your code, it's kind of like an over overlay, and these hovers show you, oh, this bean is active at runtime, this class. Oh, oh, this class is being injected into these five other classes in your running Spring Boot application. And these five other classes are defined over here. And you can just navigate and then jump to those definitions and see really what's going on at runtime. And I think that that's really interesting. Uh, and going beyond what's, what's, in the, what's in the kind of source code analysis landscape that you usually do to get these content assist and validations and errors and warnings and parsing to work right and i think that that's really interesting it's, it's one of the, the cool features that i really like in the spring tools for and we're just at the beginning it's it's really just just the beginning but it's it's really interesting you can see stuff like you have conditionals for example you have uh, conditional annotations right you say oh this bean should only be active if and then you have some random expression or if a class is on the class path, or if a property is set or whatever. And of course, by looking at the code, you don't really have an idea about, is it really going to be active at runtime or maybe not? Uh, and if you run the app and there's a magic hover appearing in your code at exactly that annotation, it tells you this conditional annotation succeeded at runtime because it found the expression or it found the class or the, the property was set or hey this condition didn't succeed it failed because of and then you get a reason why this condition failed at runtime directly in your source code and i i really love that hmm. do you uh i mean so i guess the point of all these tools of course besides making you rich and famous which is you know not trivial is helping our devs actually build software better, right? Faster. Any dev, we're just trying to get you apps in production faster, so you're learning faster, adding value, all that sort of stuff. So how do you feel that life cycle is at this point? I mean, a dev can go to, for example, start.spring.io, build a project, pull it into their IDE, iterate on it, add some, some unique functionality, hopefully CF push it, but honestly push it anywhere, push it to Azure, push it to Kubernetes, whatever. And then hopefully debug in, in production if they need to with whatever tooling the platform provides. Where do you feel like do you feel like there's any gaps in that process where we'd like to continue to see that get better, or do you feel like the the dev lifecycle experience in Spring is getting to be in a good place? I think the dev lifecycle in Spring is is going to be in, in a good place. I think at the moment what you can already do if you download, for example, the Spring Tool Suite uh, four or Spring Tool Suite three or or IntelliJ or or similar tools is. You can really, you can really do something like uh, you go to. You don't even open up a browser. Need to open up a browser for start at Spring.io. You can just click a button, and then you get all these options. Um, so you can get from zero, from downloading the tool to a running boot app on your machine that does a request mapping or something like that. Uh, you can go there in in under a minute, maybe. Um, 
And if you want to push that to CF, for example, you, you can also do that from directly within your IDE uh, in another minute, right? You just click and, and, and select a new CF target, there's direct Cloud Foundry integration, for example, and you're there. And if something goes wrong, you can, you can even directly debug that app running on Cloud Foundry, for example, um, from your IDE's debugger, having all these kind of step into and step over and, and take a look at all the variables and then expressions and whatever. Uh, you can get that experience by, by pressing another button, right? And start that in debug mode. And then uh, maybe it takes a little bit longer because kind of push, re-pushing the app takes a bit longer depending on where your PCF or CF instance is running. Um, but you, you really, you, you get, you get this, this overall experience in a really fast and, and nice, nice way. I think one of the interesting challenges that are ahead of us is if you think about these microservice world and doing cloud native applications on, on cloud environments, one of the interesting question is, um, hey, if you, you're working on that with a team, right? And uh, you have, I don't know, five people on a team working on, on maybe 20, 30, maybe 100 microservices on the whole system. And of course, I don't want to install everything locally on my machine, right, to, to test everything. And every developer is everything on his local machine. And then I push everything to my local instance, or not local, but to my personal space on Cloud Foundry to test everything in my space. And my colleagues, have they have the same. So it's all duplicated. And then there's another duplicated integration thing for, for everybody in the team. I think it's going to be an interesting question how you can mix these environments a little bit. For example, that I can say, hey, I have these, these integration integration setting on my CF, on my cloud runtime, um, where I have my 100 microservices running, and I want to hack on these two services, for example, just on these two, not on the, on, on the other ones, just on these two. So I put these two into my workspace, into my IDE locally on my machine, and I hack on them, and then they use everything else running on the cloud like all the data services, all the databases, all the messaging services, all the other services that the colleagues build and things like that. And I, I can use all of that and still just have these two microservices that I really care about at the moment running on my machine. I think that's, that's, that could be really cool. Uh, and we have prototypes for that already running. That's, that's what's, what's really interesting. It's not really kind of production ready that, that you, that you can, can ship and use. But I think it's going to be really interesting, um, especially if you think about the other way around. If you think about, I'm hacking on this on this service um, that's running on my local laptop, right? So I can debug in in, in real time and do all these 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 hacky things without repushing or debugging on the cloud. I can really do the stuff on my machine, but my service is being used by by another service that's running on the cloud. So this other service on the cloud should call my service that's running on my machine through maybe through some kind of tunneling mechanism or whatever, however that works under the hood. Um, and uh, I get the full, kind of the full microservice combinations and they call each other experience, but 
a certain set of these services are running on my local machine because they are in development on my machine. And I think that's that's going to be an interesting, really interesting case because at the moment you don't really have a good solution for that. And I think it's going to be a, a challenge for developers when they when they work in teams and work on many microservices and these big cloud native applications. And there are good ideas out there how to solve that, but that's that's going to be an interesting challenge. Well, this has been a very in-depth overview. It's good stuff. I mean, uh, let's see. If uh, Before we wrap up, if people want to check into more of this or uh, figure out what you're up to, follow you around the Internet, what, what would you – oh, obviously in a non-creepy way. But what, uh, where would you point them to? Uh, the Twitter handle, I think. You, I think you will put them on the show notes somewhere. Um, and there is uh, there's a Twitter handle for the Spring Tools called at Spring Tools 4. I think we'll put that in the show notes too. Um, there's, of course, the spring.io blog where we usually announce new releases and things like that. And um, all the stuff that we work on, all the tools are open source on GitHub. So if you use them, if you have feedback for us, and we, we would really love to hear from you if you have feedback and use the tools and you have ideas for additional things that we can do or stuff that doesn't work or things like that, file issues on GitHub. It's all open source, right? It's all there. So that was that was that would be really really cool. And and then also also as you mentioned, I mean you know Spring Tools has been around for like ten years or so, right? Like it's a it's it's a, oh, yeah. a, a pretty pretty solid product, if you will, that will probably be around much more and has has evolved a lot. It's you know because you don't want to learn an IDE and then have it like go away. It's got all those yeah. wacky key combinations and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's nice that it's had that stability for so long. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks for being on. That was good stuff. And as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get uh, the most recent or the least recent episodes, look at our entire back catalog. You can go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. There's a link to the RSS feed, but you can add it wherever you want and uh, various other things. And, you know, you should check out our other podcast, uh, Pivotal Insights. That's also in SoundCloud. Very, very uh, good podcast. It's fun. They got the same sort of thing going on there where they have a wacky person and a, uh, you know, a Richard. I'll leave it as an exercise. Wait a second. Yeah, wait a second there. <laughs> I'll, leave it, right. I'll leave it as an exercise for the reader to figure out who the uh, <laughs> the mature professional smart person is and who the wacky person is but you know it's 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 a good duo to have and usually every thursday uh except for today because that was late uh well for the previous episode if you're calling about pets for seniors usually every thursday uh we post the full show notes uh, over on pivotal.io slash podcast and with that we'll see everyone next time bye bye